Hey there, nature lovers. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Now, before we get into today's episode, just a quick reminder, we are returning back to our bi-weekly episode release. So next week, you will not be getting an episode from us. So keep that on your mind. We'll be returning back to every week for the Spooky Bunch. But for now, let's get into it. Howdy, y'all nature lovers. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, and hopefully you know the drill by now, fascination. My name's Matt, and I am joined by my two very good friends and co-hosts. I'm Brittany. And I'm CJ, and I have bad audio this week. CJ, you always have phenomenal audio, don't worry. Uh, I mean, we had some microphone trouble earlier uh it's not great right now but it will be back to normal next week slash in two weeks because like matt said we're bi-weekly that's right folks you don't get one reminder you get two so if you forget that's officially on you how's that for a rhyme i will say it's amusing too because the microphone problem is that the microphone is the problem and i think that's really really funny anyways we kind of got a little bit of an introduction but cj and Brittany, how are y'all doing i'm doing pretty well I just got back from visiting my dad and stepmom and sister, Um, and so that was super fun. And keep a lookout on my social medias because I have tons of photos I haven't posted yet from that trip. But it was a great time. I missed my first flight ever in the 27 years I've ever lived, and that was scary, but uh, I made it, and I'm back in Missouri. So it's great. 27 years let's just say that's a lot of years there Brittany. i'm glad to hear you had a nice trip you know in your 27 years of living. you know what there's one we've got one there's always a britney's really old comment and britney can't work the microphone so we just we're missing the, the second one it's well coming. that really truly we're, we're only on in the you. first five minutes Brittany. we're only in the first five minutes that's what i said is- it's coming (laughs) it truly relies it relies on you i hope you know we don't just make britney can't work the microphone episode comments it i mean britney i know you i know you you missed our last episode but if you listen back (laughs) we couldn't really hear there there may or may not have been something said about britney on the last episode we couldn't really hear you like to be completely honest (laughs) some wild audio <laughs> it's just another day. It's just another day. Uh, another day um, I'm I'm fine. I'm I'm just I'm having a I'm I'm in a string of bad luck right now. So I'm hoping my luck turns around. I'll just I'm gonna leave it there. I gotta say, CJ, I've seen at least I hope it's all of your bad luck. I, really I hope so it. too. I, I really, hope so too. Well, I hope there's not more that I haven't seen. And um, I don't think so. But I'm, also, it's definitely possible. Yeah, I know it's true. Sometimes you just gotta block stuff out, right? Matt, how are you this week? No, well, well, I'm hopeful that your luck turns around. As for me, I'm just really tired. I think. Um, it's gotten to the point where I just work all holidays, which like is very tiring because like only two people can work on the holidays, which is a lot of work. But, you know, nonetheless, I'm just chugging along, looking forward. I'm going up to Michigan pretty soon with my family and I haven't seen them since um, Easter. So it's been a while. And I'm looking. I mean, I haven't seen you since Christmas. Yeah, so you haven't seen me in a long time. Nobody has, frankly. I live alone in another state than like just about everyone I care about, which is wild. What do you mean? I've seen you right now. Ah, uh, and you can see us too if you sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com. That's the Birdie Bunch podcast. There's no such thing as a sentimental comment here on the Birdie Bunch podcast. It is all. It's always a plug. It's always a plug. Always a plug. Every time I think I'm out, they draw me back in. Well, regardless. Of all the other things that I am, aside from tired, I'm also really, really excited to get today's episode started. So kind of let's let's take a jump to our creature feature. 
So this week, we are going to be talking about the smallest uh, of the gray wolf subspecies that are here in North America. And that, of course, is the Mexican gray wolf. They are um, highly endangered and one of the rarest here um, in North America. Um, and the reason for that is actually due to over trapping of their species and honest, and also poisoning through 1915 until 1973. And here in, um, as of 2019, here in um, North America, there are about 163 Mexican gray wolves um, left from Arizona and New Mexico, which um, is a crazy low number. But these uh, Mexican gray wolves traditionally are, are supposed to be all the way from Arizona, the southeast portions, uh, down to southern New Mexico, and either in and in even into northern Mexico. Um, and they previously were once ranged into Texas, but unfortunately due to hunting, trapping, poison, poisoning, and actually people just digging up pups from their den, they were put on the Endangered Species Act in 1976. And then in 2019, that's where that a little over 100 or so individuals were. And as of 2021, there's about um, 186 wild Mexican gray wolves and about 350 captive breeding programs, um, which is really cool. For example, Brookfield Zoo in Chicago has a uh, breeding program there, and they actually have successfully integrated a couple of their wolves into the wild and um i remember when we were teenagers or when at least when cj and i were teenagers uh, they actually had uh one of their female wolves had uh like i think one or two litters uh while out in the wild and got to repopulate um which is just really awesome and just really cool to see all of that hard work really be successful and I just read, I believe, on um, their social media the other day, they were able to release a couple more, or at least one more individual recently, which is really cool. But there, there are all of these cap, uh, captive breeding programs to do these re-releases, because while there is 186 individuals, that's still a very small genetic pool, um, just for the species. So the more genetically diverse they can get, the better, um, which which makes these breeding programs so important to conservation. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about policies and things later on in our episode, but the Endangered Species Act is a big reason why these guys um, have been slowly being able to build up their numbers and at least stopped them from ideally stopping them from getting trapped and having their dens pulled and things like that. But that's uh, the Mexican gray wolf. Do y'all have any comments? Um, I, I think the only thought that I really have is about how important some of these reintroduction programs are, because there's still a lot of stigma about wolves all over the country. You know, people are fearful of wolves harming them. They're fearful of them harming their livestock or harming their pets or their families. I think it can get really dangerous when, you know, humans and animals kind of come into conflict. And we've talked on the podcast before about human wildlife conflict mitigation and things like that. So if you're interested in these kind of topics, I definitely recommend going to listen back. But for a little bit of context, these conflicts are really what bring those populations of wolves and other keystone predators down in populations, you know, Bears, bobcats, cougars, wolves, even things like ocelots and jaguars, all of these animals across the Americas in general are greatly impacted by humans. In fact, humans are their only predators because they're at the top of their food chain. So it's really, really important that because we are the ones causing their decline, 
that we be the ones who help reintroduce them and be the ones who kind of help that species bounce back. Yeah, top tier predators in general have in long decline been species that have particularly suffered for a lot of the reasons that you said, you know, we kind of are the dominant predator. There's also something to be said for the fact that like a lot of these larger bodied predators especially rely on food that is also taken by humans or rely on spaces that are encroached upon by humans, right? When you look at the the range map or the necessity of living space for say a wolf a wolf pack or you know how much mileage that a um you know like a a jaguar needs in order to truly survive it is a hugely different ballpark when we're looking at those kinds of requirements and you know with an ever-growing world an ever-growing human population those are the first species that are implicated right and it's the species that have struggled living alongside humans because humans are afraid of them and have then such been relegated to small swatches of land that are smaller than they can survive in. And so it's this kind of compounding effect that's really important that we learn to live with because if we don't, we will lose these species. And that's with top tier predators, not something that can happen. You know, if you're interested in knowing about how those top tier predators, you know, exist within their ecosystems, definitely go look up the Isle Royale wolf project or look up the Yellowstone wolf project. Like these animals are crucial, crucial, crucial. Losing them means whole wide scale ecosystem collapse. And that's just not, not possible. Luckily, you know, it's, um, we've got people fighting all around the world for these species. Um, and a lot of those kinds of fights are usually documented in our current events section. So why don't we pass it off to current events now? So in current events this week, obviously we are a podcast based in the United States. So a lot of our current events stem from the United States. And this one is, in fact, no different. So for those of you who didn't see, just a few weeks ago in, was it still technically June? I think it was. I think it was June 30th, um, a ruling by the United States Supreme Court basically curtailed the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, their power to restrict uh, carbon emissions from power plants which was initially under a 2014 rule, so back during the Obama era. And yeah, so kind of a step back in terms of conservation news. This episode really is not turning out to have a super positive ending, which I'm hoping that it will by the end, maybe. Um, Matt, can you confirm or deny that we'll have a positive ending here? I can make anything positive. Wow, that's beautiful. Anyway, back to current events. Um, So a 6-3 to ruling, basically, in the case of West Virginia versus the EPA, um, found that, quote, the EPA lacked the authority to enforce an Obama-era power plant rule without specific congressional approval. So basically, although this ruling kind of disallows the specific approach without lawmakers signing off that the EPA can kind of curb some of those carbon emissions, the EPA still has a broader authority to regulate power plant outputs, to cut emissions under the Clean Air Act. The problem from those who kind of want the EPA to cut emissions, like conservationists, is that in most cases, they're less efficient and more expensive in this political and regulatory environment where literally every second counts. Every second of carbon emissions counts. So the fact that there's a lot of red tape that the EPA has to go through to kind of curtail some of those emissions is going to be really, really uh, a, a big struggle. Following this ruling, EPA kind of said that, quote, it still has a number of pathways to do its job to protect public health and the environment, including by limiting greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. Basically, Thursday's ruling from the Supreme Court of the United States ruled I mean, it it specifically applies to, like I said, that 2014 Obama-era 
you know, clean power plan, which had this goal of kind of generation shifting or accelerating the shift from coal-fired power to renewable energy and natural gas. And it's a significant constraint because literally that was the EPA's first choice for clean energy, and now they're struggling to find a replacement. It really reflects how the power grid operates and the fact that electricity is fungible. People can make money off of it. And if they can make money off of it, then they're going to be exploited. Obviously, for those who have been paying attention, this is not the only ruling that the Supreme Court made in the past uh, a couple of weeks. Um, not all of them are super relevant to the Brady Much podcast. So maybe we'll refrain from some of that talk, even though I know a lot of us have opinions and thoughts and feelings, which I think we've shared on our personal social medias. So if you want some of that, you're welcome to go follow us on there, which we'll plug at the end of the episode. But this one specifically relates to what we all love, and that's nature and conservation by restricting, or rather limiting restrictions against carbon emissions. Um, any thoughts from you folks? There's a lot here I could go on, but I feel like I have kind of been tapped out on my feelings for the past week, especially in terms of Supreme Court rulings. I have a lot of feelings on a lot of the things the Supreme Court uh, has decided to do, and none of them have been great. And um, it's really frustrating to feel like we are taking steps backwards in lots of different aspects in life, um, including this one. And it's frustrating and it makes me very angry on top of other things that um, CJ is right. Maybe it's not a good a good spot to talk about on here, even though it supremely affects yeah. those of us on the podcast. Um, but yeah. Um, I know I'll be sharing a bunch on that social media later, but I just, it, in, in the comment for this one, it just feels like it's just another step backwards and that's frustrating. And hopefully there's another solution. Yeah. I will mirror all the things you said. Um, first off, I'll actually be plugging my Twitter today as well, which I never plug my Twitter, I'm, you know, but there's been a lot of things that I think people have needed to be vocal about, like truly vocal about. That have happened in the past couple weeks, um, even before we've you know recorded this episode. And so, if you'd like to know my explicit commentary, like in my words, not someone else's Instagram picture, you know, shared to my story or something like that, I'll be plugging my Twitter as well. If anyone's interested in my thoughts upon these larger scale topics, um, but for now, you know, you'll hear you know a lot of my opinions uh, as we go into the main topic. So I think we can probably transition out of current events and kind of head to the main topic. Alrighty. So we kind of, you know, hinted at a little bit. I will say the, um, the episode topic at hand was largely spurred by our current events. We all kind of gleaned it separately because this was major, major, major news. So it wasn't like um, someone brought, you know, at current event, and it was like, wow, this is a cool little interesting thing. Like, CJ saw what we'd all seen, and that was kind of too big to not discuss on the podcast, which, first of all, is, um, in a word, traditionally frightening. Um, these are big, big ramifications that come from um, stuff like this. And so I figured, you know, we haven't been able to do a lot of full-scale roundtables for the full episodes aside from queer ecology in a little bit of a while you know and it's an episode structure that we all have found we really really enjoy i think a lot of it because like you know cj Brittany, and i outside of the podcast are also friends outside of the podcast and a lot of the learning that i get and receive is just from discussing with these two lovely humans um, a lot of the things that I have gleaned off just knowledge in general from people have been from these two. And so I think it's a really important and constructive exercise in not only having these kinds of discussions, but also listening to these kinds of discussions, because listening to people learn really opens up your ability to learn as well. Like experiencing learning external from you destigmatizes learning and changing and developing. And so I think it's a really important 
candid discussion to be had about the state of affairs right now in America, but also in the world. The world will be affected by what goes on in America. Um, and so with that, I thought it would be really important to just kind of have a roundtable discussion about how we feel about environmental policy and specifically kind of the role of government within conservation and preservation and all these big, broad-scale topics that we discuss so often here on the podcast. And so I kind of wanted to pose the question initially before we delve into anything, because this will be a largely, you know, this is a very unscripted, just candid discussion. But what do you feel um, to you, CG and Brittany, just as a kind of a branching off point, what do you both feel is really just the role of our political system within environmentalism? And I know that's a really big, broad question. But pushing a broad question then allows us to hone in is the way I felt and like discuss really specific topics. And so I figured start big, just like, you know, starting any scientific paper, you start with a really broad scale introduction and then hone in. Um, so I was hoping that would be something that we could kind of amplify and mirror. That's that's a very hard question to to answer just because there's so many like it's so multifaceted. But I will comment in that I think that government policies are really important um, when it comes to make like making protections to animals and to land. And um, we've talked a lot on different portions of that, even just in with talking about the Mexican gray wolves and how important the Endangered Species Act is. And we've talked about um trying to save the Bellbolt Prairie. And I think it's really important that our policies are, there are policies in place to protect those lands, to protect those animals. Um, and that, and that those are in place. I think it gets trickier when there's so many differing opinions on how, how it's done and what's done and all of those stuff, all that stuff. But I think it is important that government policies are put in place to add those protections because without some of those policies in place, we wouldn't have animals like the Mexican gray wolf or um, the Andean condor or the bald eagle. And so I think I think for now, that's where I'm going to stop. Yeah, and I feel like that's a really great stopping point because there's a lot to jump off from there. You know, there's a lot to jump off from there, Brittany. Um, I think my take on, I guess the question was the necessity of regulations in the environment. Is that correct? That that was sort of the question. Yeah. In an ideal world, right? In an ideal world, there'd be no need to restrict the environment, right? The environment should just be able to continue to exist without any restrictions upon it. But that isn't quite right, you know? And you can take this framework, apply it to anything, right? It, it, not taking into account the historical context of things would make every solution so very easy. But there is a lot of historical background that is needed, especially in terms of the environment particularly here in the United States, and I'm sure globally as well, people came, I should correct myself, white people came here and actively, for lack of a better word, mess things up. And there's a lot stronger words I would like to use, but I'm not going to. And, you know, it, taking some of that context into account where this nation is built on exploiting the environment. We've talked about this with queer ecology just two, three weeks ago, where we've created this system that depends on exploiting the environment. So when that's what the system is based on, regulations are inherently needed to protect it, if that's something that we even want to do, which it wasn't for such a long time. So, I don't know, for these reasons, I, I don't want to be pro-regulation for the environment, but inherently I have to be, because that's the world we live in. 
I think to kind of broaden, you know, the perspective that I I have for government and government's role in our lives in general, specifically when looking at an American style government, because that's all I can speak on. And so I would like to put that out there because I've never lived in a parliamentary system. So like I can't speak on anything that I, you know, I can't speak for other world governments. Um, but I will say that our government system, whether or not you you feel, you know, how you feel about the constitution, anything like that, no matter what your interpretation of any documents or anything is, we all agree that our government was made theoretically by the people or the people. Our government does not get put into place to set up systems to control us. Theoretically, what our government's role is, is to be a regulatory service to preserve the way of life the way that the American people want. That's theoretically what it's supposed to be. Theoretically, man. Theoretically. I don't yeah, know. There's lots of, that's a big theoretical right there. Well, that's why I'm saying theoretically, because looking at the know, state I can, of affairs. I can, I can pull, pull up some stats and figures if you really want. Well, looking at the current state of affairs, when we talk about climate policy, right? We just talked about the Supreme Court's decision to curtail restrictions that the EPA can place on greenhouse gases being expelled into the air systems. 66% of Americans currently, currently, right now, today, right now, 66% of Americans not only believe in climate change, that was a much higher number, actually, not only believe in climate change, but believe in climate policy, believe that the American government should be doing more to prevent climate catastrophe. That's two-thirds. That is an overwhelming majority, of which, among the likes, you almost never see in these kinds of broad topic debates. That's 66%. Which, again, I, I would like to propose exactly what we've been saying throughout this episode, and I mentioned it during the current event, specifically tying into this 66% of Americans want us to be doing more to prevent you know, climate change. It was 66% of the Supreme Court. It was a six to three vote like to restrict the EPA. Exactly. So if that's not a representation of how America is represented in government and thusly through policy of the government, I don't know. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to bring up any personal stuff. Well, that. no, and you're kind of making my point beautifully because we, as a people, live in what's known as a representative democracy. It's we elect the people who we think whose opinions that we believe in theoretically theoretically exactly theoretically we elect the people who are supposed to work for us because the government the government is put into place by us it should be controlled by us and so when you put people into power we have majorities in all facets of government except for the supreme court and yet somehow 66 percent of the supreme court completely flip-flops from what the rest of the American people are wanting and literally screaming for, that's a problem. Yes, it is a problem. And I think that's just a problem with, with, I may make a very broad statement and CJ, feel free to, of course, to, to bleep it out. If you feel like it's I probably a step won't. too far. I'm not going to lie. We like through being a pro conservation podcast, like what we do is inherently political. It is. Yeah. Whether we want it to be or not. It's inherently political because while we're not going to say vote for this candidate, we will say vote for environmental policy. Yeah. And so I, I'm going to so let you speak, whatever you want to speak, Brittany. I, like my statement, I guess is like, that's kind of the problem with just, um, american government right mm -hmm. is that this is theoretically what it's supposed to be but in actuality and in, in reality it's not yeah. and we theoretically we're the ones who are supposed to be putting them in place but there are so many intricacies of allowing corporations and things to all of a sudden have say in who whose candidate gets chosen and it are the American people, our voices, I feel like tend to, to be lessened in, in what, and what, you know, 
we think. I, I would also like to not not put in as devil, devil's advocates, but like the three of us um, are all very aligned in, in our belief systems. And I, in the past few weeks, have had several conversations with different people who don't align with with my belief systems and, and what I think should be happening and the policies I believe that should be put in place. But what it makes me realize is that I don't think that sometimes all of our beliefs are all that far off. I just think that our beliefs aren't being represented in, in our government and the policies that are being created. And it's frustrating. And I think that's why voting is very important. And that if you're not registered to vote, go register to vote to make your voice heard. Um, because that's how we get policies that are put in place that we want to be put in place and how we stop policies that we don't want to stop them. And I, I'm going to get off my soapbox now, but I think it's important because the, we could talk in, in theoreticals till we're blue in the face, but when it's not the actual reality mm -hmm. of what happened, it's tragic because you, like every government, across the world there's always going to be issues nothing's ever perfect but when like other people from other countries are like america you good like what the heck maybe it's time to start looking at what's actually happening and really standing up for what we all believe in well make no mistake my my whole point and aim is that everything that we look at is theoretical and theory is bullshit when it's not activated theory who gives a crap who gives a crap about majority politics and democracy when frankly we're ruled by a minority like a very vocal very stringent minority i will pick my i will placate my words very carefully i think that's wise um but it, it speaks to what I think, you know, and this is kind of what we need to contend with is the fact that our government system was created not to protect the American people, but to protect the American bureaucracy. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, you see it all the time when you look at Senate majority leaders who have been in office for 20, 30 years. When you look at Supreme Court justices who are added to the bench at age 30 and live a whole entire 50 years later and die on that bench if we are a rapidly evolving country our I system argue, should i would be. argue we're not a rapidly evolving country i think a majority of people want to be when you look at the way polls go and everything like I'll that agree exactly but i would argue that we still we are not well 20 years and it's and it's like, really interesting when you think about how policy is reflected in that, right? Yeah. Because, you know, in the past, you know, 35 years, we've seen a lot of change in environmental policy because, like, we went from strictly being a coal energy producing country to having, like, what, less than 20% of green energy being used. So, like, we're doing great. But I think the issue is people are very, especially people who, are unfamiliar with what change means. Change is so scary. Change is so scary for everybody. It's not scary just for people who don't understand it. It's scary for people who do understand it. Look, think about these floods we've had, are these like flash flood, like landslides we've had in Yellowstone, right? We've had global wildfires. We've had earthquakes and floods and tsunamis. Two weeks ago, a tornado touched down in the city of Chicago like took half a building down in the city that's not supposed to happen especially being right on the lake our climate is actively being messed up and you can factually attribute it to human cause 98 percent of carbon emissions come from two percent of countries and the countries that are most impacted are those other 98 here in the United States, we're not even feeling the impacts. And that's why we're so resistant to change. If you're a farmer in the middle of a field, you're not going to see a flat, like a, a city get wiped away in a flash flood in the middle of Malaysia. 
You're not even going to hear about it on the news. It's this disconnect that we have because we are so removed from the rest of the world. That's what makes policy so difficult. And our inherent divide here in the States, you know, I'm not going to go any further in that, but our inherent divide is not about, oh, I want the world to be on fire and I don't want the world to be on fire. It's I want change and I don't want change. That's really the difference. And when people are asking for change, other people get scared and it frightens them and then there's even more issues. And that's why policy struggles. One thing that I'm kind of glad you made mention of a global system too, because it's so easy to look within, within where you live, right? Like it's so, 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 so easy. And to just look at, you know, the country that you're in and forget that there is a whole entire world outside of what you experience and what your political system experiences every single day. And it's hard to understand and fathom the fact that what we do has ramifications within another system. And that's a, a whole nine yards. You know, one thing, a statistic I saw just earlier today discussing this this topic is that America annually contributes almost 20% or over 20% of global carbon emissions yearly. That is a fifth of the world's the world's emissions from one country it's estimated by scientists that america alone has contributed to 0.2 degrees celsius of warming for reference the global temperatures since 1980 have increased by one degree celsius with two-thirds of that coming from just 1975 which means that again one-fifth of that warming is purely just from the United States, where a lot of these policies are being really heavily contested. And kind of like Brittany mentioned, too, it's interesting to see and to take yourself out from an America-centric lens and look at the way, try and look at what we're doing in a way that somebody not here would look at it. Because you're right that, like, people are watching. And so I think... I don't know. Policy is an interesting debate, which is why we're talking about it. I'd be curious, like we've kind of been talking about policy on like a broadened scale, like on a big, like on a big scale, right? Like big policies and things like that. I'd be curious as to y'all's opinion on like smaller policies um, that are made in smaller things, um, like not being able to collect rainwater or needing licenses to, to go fishing in a pond or like smaller policies that are put in place or smaller laws that are put in place versus like the bigger ones and like your opinions and thoughts on the necessities of those I think smaller policy is, and this was actually a direction that I wanted to go. So I'm really excited that you brought that up because like really small grassroots style conservation has to be the way that we attack any and all things going on. Because frankly, I think we've discussed it a lot on the podcast, but someone who lives in Washington, D.C. can't possibly look at Yellowstone and look at the Everglades and look at your little, you know, podunk street corner and tell you that they know every single thing that or has even to be places done. like belbo prairie yeah exactly they can't look at those places all and tell you that they know the best response for every single one that's not that's not humanly possible and it's not necessarily even an indictment it's just that is not a possibility and so with a lot of decisions that have been made um, there's a lot of decisions that have been made that kind of examine decentralizing decision-making, and that's not always a proper avenue. Um, the Supreme Court has made that very clear that they will choose decentralization for really poor topics. But I will say, when we talk about local conservation, there is nobody who cares more about a local space than the people who use that local space. And maybe those kinds of 
rules and regulations still get decentralized, but decentralization shouldn't mean de-empathization. Policymakers should take everything that they know from the people who live in these communities, not the oil company who extracts from that community, the people who live there, not the people who want to build a road through the prairie, the people who live there. And I think that's the most important thing is we need, if things are set up the way they were said they were to be set up, we should be listening to the people who live there. That's the point. And so you can't uncouple those two phenomenon because it's all they all work in conjugation with each other. And those smaller laws should inform the decision making of larger scale policy and laws, you know, and vice versa. If a species is protected by the Endangered Species Act, like say, you know, maybe the rusty patch bumblebee state. And local laws should also reflect that jurisdiction. This is, this shouldn't be a fight. It shouldn't be the state versus the feds. It shouldn't be your district versus the state. It shouldn't be, everything is supposed to work in conjugation and harmoniously in these nice coupled nested little layers. That's the way I feel it should anyway. It doesn't, but God, I think it should. Everything, it's like an ecosystem, except a really, improperly mismanaged one uh, taken over by Burmese pythons and other species that are here to wreck your world. Looking at you, Florida. I agree with you that like policies and things, when, when those are being considered, they should be looking at local communities um, because they're, they, you're right. Like they're the ones that are living there. They're the ones that are dealing with it. They're, I think the reason why it's not as harmonious as we should is because I feel like when policies are made, they want them to be a one and done, you know, like this rule applies to everyone and because, because it's what makes it most simple. Um, does it make it right? It just makes it, simple um which is unfortunate i don't necessarily understand some of the smaller policies that are put in place and why they're put in place i mean i don't actually always agree with all of them um but we have a system that doesn't look at what people want and we have a system that highly exploits our natural world and where you can where there are natural resources that can be used by all they're they're going to be exploited example that's why you have to pay to get air <laughs> when you like fill up your tires and why you have to yeah i i don't know how to neatly tie that tie it all back together um i think i might be able to help you out yeah I think, I might be, I think I might be able to help you out in tying it together. Um, I mentioned it before. I'm going to keep mentioning it because this conversation ties really beautifully into our conversation from just a few weeks ago where we had that similar roundtable but on queer ecology. And in that discussion, we spoke at length how the world is separated into these dualisms where it's human versus nature and human and, and natural versus unnatural and we sort of directed those conversations more towards the conversation of you know queerness and the lgbtqia plus community and their relationship with nature and then like society's relationship with queer people as well and sort of comparing those two things but one thing we also talked about and that pulls into this discussion here is the idea of policy's relationship to nature and not policy as a whole but more just like legislators and governments policy uh as a whole against nature right and how those two things are in fact a dualism when you 
when you think of synonyms for nature, one that comes to mind for me is the wild, right? Wildlife is what we call it. Imagine putting restrictions on something that is literally called the wild. That doesn't make any sense. But the reason we have to is because we're destroying it. So it's either destroy it and continue to exploit it and drill in these national parks to get gasoline or cut down all of these beautiful places to make farmland or to get lumber. It is very, very interesting when you think about how we continue to exploit our land. There is places all over the country, all over the globe, that are new fracking sites every single day. There are marine reserves that are currently being contested to get drilling permits for oil. Like, this isn't stuff that CJ is just making up for the Birdie Bunch podcast. This is all real. And people want to exploit the natural world. And what are they exploiting it for? They're exploiting it inherently for some derivative of profit or success. Or, kind of like we mentioned a few weeks ago, this idea of manifest destiny. It is our destiny to control nature. That was the American dream, baby. That's what we did. It's what we do. And our policy shapes, like, it, it, it's defined by that. And this willingness of, this dualism, rather, of change versus no change. This idea of uh, stagnancy, or that's not really the best word, but kind of keeping things stagnant versus the, the ability of progress. There are things that, as a nation, we have not figured out. Let's just leave it at that. And it's things we probably should. So, you know, I, I'm going to toss it back to Matt here, and, and maybe I've kind of bled into your next point, but I don't know. I, I, I think the conversation that Brittany and I both kind of started there in discussing the, the exploitation of nature for capital gain, whether it's to benefit an individual or the government, is still an exploitation of nature. Please take it away, Matthew. It's interesting because, you know, when we look at environmental policy and policies that are put in place, a lot of times, you know, government in general, just from its most basic construct, when you look at implementations of historical governments and all that, you know, generally what we're looking at with the role of government at its most initial base, you know, boiled down construct is to protect something, right? It was to protect people from bad people it was to, you know, protect. That's like what government is theoretically, you know, from philosophies. Con like I, I would actually fiction. argue something different. I would actually argue something different. I would argue mm -hmm. that, a lot of people forget that humans are an animal. A lot of people forget we are an animal. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult as an animal to have a pack or a group or a troop or whatever you want to call it for humans as primates of 8 billion. Yeah. And so governments are a way of grouping us, right? We are defined by an as a nation. Yeah. Right? We all look out for our troop of our nation. And I think that's how it initially started when you think of nation states, I don't know, a couple thousand years ago. But it's not like war didn't happen. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Right. People have always had conflict. Yeah. No, nationalism leaches in and there's, you know, many con conflicts, you know, arise and such like that. When you think about, like, the most traditional government or something like that it was like well i'm worried my neighbor's gonna rob me what will i do i put in a law my neighbor can't rob me da, 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 da. that's government and so a lot of times when we look at government we look at protecting a certain group a certain thing right um and so a lot of times we look at environmental policy as we are protecting the environment from people and i do think that that's a really improper way of looking at it I think it's a proper way of looking at it the way that humans and nature exist together currently. But it speaks to a necessary paradigm shift 
to where instead of protecting nature from people, we should be protecting nature for people. And what do I what do I mean by that exactly? You know, if we look at and this speaks very heavily to, you know, what CJ has talked about, about manifest destiny and all that. When we look at the way that we think about the natural world currently. Completely revolving around politics. The paradigm of which nature should be protected from people inherently implies that people are to seek out to exploit. And that is the way it is currently set up. But it also speaks to the way that we view our role with nature. By discussing it as protecting from, we view our role as we are supposed to exploit. That that is what humans should and will do. And if you decouple that, right? If you take away the stigma that humans were made to take control, to exploit, to utilize every single thing in the natural world and go to a preservation for humanity. Preservation for humanity looks a lot of different ways because humanity is not just utilization of resources such as breathing and drinking and eating. It's also cultural benefits of the outdoor world. It's inherently spiritual relationships. It's gathering places. It's trips with your uncle to Yellowstone. It's all sorts of things that preserve the environment, not from people, but for people. Preserving it in a way to where it is socially and inherently and culturally conducive to not only nature's existence, but ours too. And by decoupling them in an inherently parasitic relationship, and instead creating a mutualism, it really, in my in my smatterings and thoughts, really opens up a lot of possible, you know, a lot of possibilities for the way that we can set aside policy that preserves nature, not in a way to where the gas company is going to get them, so we have to stop the gas company, but instead examines that space that the gas company is going for in its whole entity you know what is that space what does that space mean to the people who live there to the people who will travel there who the people who have watched it on tv and all sorts of people across the world who have dreamed about going there you know that's really what policy should seek to do is to preserve that relationship between humanity and nature not sever it because humans are inherently parasitic if we go into the basis that we have to be parasitic because we're humans, we will never fix a single dang thing. I don't know if I have anything else to add. I don't either. I think I have I've said all the things I'm comfortable saying on yeah, a, on I a think, podcast form. I think that's really it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could speak I, very diplomatically, so I... I mean, if you want to, like like I said, wrap it up on a positive note, Matthew. I, would mm-hmm. love I, I think that we all are very passionate and we speak very passionately. And I think that diplomatically, I know f- I'll speak for myself. I've said I think as much as I can on a diplomatic form because I recognize not everybody has my own, my, my, my same viewpoints. And I think that's a, that's okay, but in this specific topic, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's something that with a a public, you know, a public persona, kind of naturally comes with is that kind of. I guess I don't want to call it towing the line, but at the same time, I know I can't really describe it as any other way than you know, making sure to kind of remember that we are a public platform. Um, So for that reason, I think we can probably wrap this up before we all get to where we really feel and think, because that could be, that would be a very long episode. Frankly, there's a reason we do these episodes sober, but at the crux of it, what it really comes down to is we as a people are taught that we don't have power we are taught that the government is power and that we are just 
people. But let me just say, in a especially in a representative democracy such as the American people's, we have what a hundred senators, how many congressmen, and how many people live within the United States. Never let anyone tell you that you don't have power, that you don't have the power to make and create change because we all have skills and paths and abilities that all can create massive change within our government system and without. Not all change has to come within government, right? If you look at the grassroots movement that is going on in Rockford, Illinois, in regards to the Bell Bull Prairie, everything that's happening currently that is saving these rusty patch bumblebees exists solely outside of government, fun fact. Never let anyone goad you into thinking that you don't have the capacity to make change. Because even the smallest of change, when replicated amongst 8 billion people in the world, is nothing short of massive. We as humans have the capacity to do amazing and grand things. And so whether that comes from policy or whether that comes from anything outside of that, never, ever, ever forget that. And that's, I think, what I want the main takeaway to be, is that it's easy to look at things and think it's hopeless. Because it certainly feels it, right? We're watching our world march towards climate disaster, many scientists say. We are watching all of this happen in real time. And it's so easy to think that this just happens and you can't do anything about it. You always can. Every single one of you. Your voice matters. Your voice is, has been, and will continue to be heard because that's what our voices are they are a mechanism for growth and change and development and so investigating the way policy interacts with humans i think is important but at the end of the day just remember that you're the power within wherever you live you are the voice you are you can control everything so that is really kind of where I'd like to leave that. Use your voice. You deserve to. You deserve to be heard. And so I guess to move on outward, you all deserve to be heard. And we, you know, we run a podcast where I guess we think we deserve to be heard. We don't deserve to be heard, but we are heard. So thank you all for listening, first of all. Um, if you would like to investigate a little bit more about we, what we said, maybe outside the podcast, you can go find us on social media. I can be found on Instagram at Matt Valiga. That is M-A-T-T-V as in Victor, A-L-I-G-A. I also made mention that I was going to plug my Twitter. I will, in fact, plug my Twitter, which I don't use very often. But if you're interested in how I feel about just the world in general, um, you can find me at Valiga. So M-V as in Victor, A-L-I-G-A on the Twitter. Not a very big platform, but I use it. And if you're curious about what I think about what the state of affairs are, that is where I would recommend going to that. Brittany and CJ, where can people find y'all on social media? You can find me on Instagram at the Brittany Bunch, T-H-E-B is in bird, R-I-T-T-A-N-Y underscore B is in bird, U-N-C-H. And I've been posting pretty irregularly. Um, I'll probably be posting a little bit more on some more social issues um, that I'm feeling pretty passionate about right now. Um, but it's also a great spot just to see kind of what I'm up to in my daily life. Um, I post a lot of dog content. So um, it's a good spot to kind of get a snapshot of who I am. And you can find me on the social meds at cj.greco. That's cj.greco. And honestly, I don't know what I'm posting this week. Probably something. I don't know what it's going to be. So stay tuned. CJ.Greco. That's CJ.GRECO. Give it a follow. In addition, if you'd like to hear the Birdie Bunch podcasts, responses to anything, or just kind of see what we're doing in general, you can find us all collectively on Instagram and Facebook at the Birdie Bunch podcast. 
as well as our website, www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. There you can find all sorts of resources, episodes, merch store. Did I say merch store? I think I said merch store. You can go to our merch store. Um, if you're interested in supporting us, that is a great avenue. Um, there is also a Patreon. We have both of those links up on the website. So if you'd like some merch or if you'd like some extra special exclusive kind of content, go check out that Patreon right on our. Okay. <laughs> go check out our Patreon. And like I said, you can be found on our website. We appreciate all of our patrons. So Gabe Anderley, this one's for you. Thanks for being a G. You're a real one. Mm -hmm. You're a real <laughs> one. Thanks for being a G, Gabe. If you'd like to support us on the pod, but you can't financially support us, frankly, completely understand. There's a lot of ways that you can without any monetary transactions whatsoever. First of which being leaving a review. You can do so on Apple Ford Podcasts, or you can do Apple so... Apple Ford Podcasts! I'm looking at a picture of a pork chop, but it just kind of came out. <laughs> it has fennel on it, and it was really pretty. Oh, bro, I love fennel. Me too. I really love fennel. Um... Um, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, which we don't have any current ones, but you also or, can leave them on yeah. Facebook. CJ, do you have some Facebook reviews? Yeah, I have a Facebook review right here I'm going to read out. So this is a five-star review. Like I said, if it's a five-star review, or like Matt said, rather, if it's a five-star review, we'll read it out here on the podcast. It's a five-star review from the name here on Facebook is Stanley Gherkin Adams. And the, the, the review says, a wonderful podcast that is very informative, and they cover all aspects of animals I never would have thought about. Thank you so much for that review. Love it. We appreciate you more than you know. That's for sure. This person just sounds so supportive. I love it. I, you know what? If I saw this person just on the street, I would just, one, give them a high five, two, give them a big hug, and then three, I might, for Christmas, order them a subscription to a sock service. Who knows? Honestly, that person sounds like they'd love every single sock that has come to their yeah. house potentially that's what i've heard that's what yeah. I've heard. I, yeah how about, how about this hypothetical person if i might uh, hypothetically theoretically <laughs> it seems like we might know this person no we don't matt please no. continue all right matt is please continuing anyways in addition to leaving a review you also can just share the words of this podcast with a friend, right? You know, if you have friends who love nature, love getting outdoors, really afraid to listen to those really niche podcasts on conservation, send them our way. We love to be jacks of all trades, masters of none when it comes to conservation and outdoor experiences. Um, we really could not have this podcast without y'all. And it is you guys and how much you've rallied around it and how much you've listened and how much you've shared it with the people that you know that allows us to thrive and continue to use this platform to speak for accessibility in nature as well as nature in general that really kind of allows us to keep going. So first of all, we really appreciate it. Um, and also that's probably the easiest way that you can help out is just, you know, get in touch with us, share us with other people, you know. If there's an episode you want to hear, definitely send us um, a bit of a topic. We would love to talk about it. Um, CJ and Brittany, is there anything that I'm missing before we head out? Um, the only thing that I can think of is, like Brittany already mentioned in this episode, if you're not registered to vote, go vote. That's what makes mm -hmm. it a difference. That's what makes a huge difference in terms of policy. We'll probably remind you once midterms are around the corner come November. But definitely head out there and vote, especially if you are here in the States. So close. Because we got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. 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 DJ couldn't have said it better. Go vote. Catch you next time. Yeah, bye. See you later. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have noticed this, if you've listened back to the episodes at all. But at the end of every episode... 
Yeah. I've been like not ending it on the catch you next time. It's been like a weird send off. So I'm really hoping mm-hmm. that someone has been catching on has been enjoying it at least. Yeah. I'm just, enjoying it. I kind of just like the yeah, bye. <laughs> see ya. <laughs> yeah, see ya. Whatever. I guess. Catch you next time. Thanks so much, all you nature lovers, for listening to yet another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would especially like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our art for our episodes, as well as Connor Women for producing our music. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.